Hello from Denver, Colorado. This is Vince Simhoff, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded by Legal Shield's Elevate Conference. Joining me now, I have guest number one, Andrew Livingston. Andrew is an economist with Vicente Cedarberg, and he's going to explain to us the forefront and the new areas of economy that are being impacted by the new cannabis regulations. Uh, and after him, I'm going to go to Barb Brohl. Barb was the, uh, one of the authors for the Colorado uh, regulations surrounding cannabis. Uh, she's also the founder of BJ Brohl uh, Strategies, which is a, uh, a regulation uh, company that tells people how to interact with the cannabis regulations. Jason Cerns is our, one of our other panelists. He's going to explain the hemp uh, farm bill industry stuff and what goes along with that and how it goes into public health. Then we're going to talk to Amanda Osteritz. Did I get that right, Amanda? Good enough. All right. She is the co-founder of Canaregs. It's a data platform for the cannabis industry. To, and she also is very educated and smart in how to do banking and how to have your cash be accessed and so you can access it without being threatened physically, I think is the most important part. And then Lenny Freeling and... Damon Cassens are going to help us uh, understand the new criminal defense uh, regulations and uh, rules that surround cannabis and driving and the industries that are impacted by that. So if I could, let's start off with Andrew. Andrew, could you tell us where we're going with the economies part of the cannabis industry? Sure thing. So, you know, I'll talk first a little bit about this from the business perspective and then also a little bit about, you know, from the economics of a legal profession, because you know they're both a little bit different when it comes to what are the, the best sure opportunities for the market. So we're going to see dramatic growth um, from the business perspective of cannabis really throughout the country. There's still quite a lot of areas to grow in places like California, where you've got a population of you know around 40 million people, um, and still, you know, slow processes of regulations in some of the largest cities in the LA, uh, Los Angeles County area, and you know, e even up north. So we'll still see, you know, continued pretty tremendous growth in, in places like California. Uh, but then recently, we were seeing legalization pop up through legislatures uh, across the country. So, you know, while New York State just recently. Uh, was not able to get it across the finish line, uh, and New Jersey faced the same similar hurdle uh, trying to pass legalization through its legislature. Illinois, one of the biggest states in the country, uh, and a state that has had medical cannabis for a number of years, just this year uh, legalized adult-use cannabis through its legislature in a commercial fashion. It's the first state in the country to create a commercial regulated program passed by a legislature. Vermont had done it a little bit earlier, but they haven't established a commercial system yet. So is there any hope for the folks that live in the southeast, say you're in Georgia, South Carolina, or in the north, mid-north part of the yeah. Dakotas? Uh, sure thing. So Florida, first of all, does have a relatively robust medical cannabis system. Mm -hmm. And while the number of licenses they have there is somewhat limited, uh, there's about 14, and now it's going to grow a little bit more than that. Um, there are states that have been, you know, slowly developing um, limited cannabis, uh, medical cannabis regimes in the southeast. So uh, Georgia is, is working to create a semi-commercial, uh, what's called a low THC or CBD law. 
um, that was passed a number of years ago, so they're just commercializing that. Virginia also has a commercial, although it's limited, uh, low THC slash CBD program. But really in the, in the mid-Atlantic, the largest growth area you'll probably look to is a place like Maryland, um, which is really growing its medical cannabis system. Uh, and it's a full medical cannabis system, which you get flour, uh, they just legalized edible products. Um, and they'll likely have an adult use bill um, put forward to voters or you know, seriously considered by their legislature in the next year or two. So we're going to still see this pop up. a lot of good growth then. Yeah, it's, a, it's still a state-by-state -state market by and large. Um, where we have seen some national you know, ability for growth is a combination of multi-state operators, many of which are publicly listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Um, but we've also started to see more and more national movement when it comes to licensing intellectual property across state lines. Because, you know, of course, you can't move cannabis edible products, but you can move the branding and the know-how and the standard operating procedures that the businesses utilize to create those products. And so lawyers are really important in helping to set up those intellectual property and licensing deals for maybe some established companies from places like Colorado or California or Oregon and bring those new products to consumers in places like Florida, Maryland, New York, and the rest of the East Coast. From the legal perspective, the opportunities here are significant. So cannabis is one of those sorts of markets that really touches on just about everything. Right. Right. So if you are you know, not in the legal profession, you know, it's everything from real estate to uh, complex extraction manufacturing to agricultural technology mm -hmm. right. to you know technology used for seed to sell tracking and on the legal perspective there's a similar sort of realm that exists around cannabis everything from commercial real estate to intellectual property and trademark licensing to litigation associated with uh, you know just contract disputes to you know even people um, who work on you know things like um, administrative violations. So, you know, bending into the criminal side of right. things, you know, representing people if, you know, they had some sort of administrative violation or even representing people that are businesses that, you know, got caught up in some sort of criminal violation. Hang on one second. Barb, you were, uh, worked with Governor Hickenlooper to help found uh, or implement the first regulations for cannabis to be sold publicly. Where did you find the inspiration for those regulations and laws that have now, uh, govern the marketplace? So that's a, a really interesting uh, question because uh, even though there are 33 states right now that have legalized for medical plus DC and now with Illinois 11 that have legalized for adult use plus DC, think back in 2012, we were the very first right. state mm -hmm. that had legalized through voter initiative uh, adult use cannabis uh, and a regulated program. So we were out there. We had no model to follow. So we had to come up with something. And so when you have a, a place where you need to go and you don't have any chance of failure, you have, to, you have to succeed, you have to put up some guideposts. And you have to figure out what are your guiding posts to help you steer the ship. And so the three guideposts that we had were keeping cannabis out of the hands of kids. Right, public safety. And child safety keeping it out of uh, the hands of criminals and cartels, so a lot of other public safety. And uh, then we also had 
our final one was to keep it out of the out of other states because we knew that was going to be problematic. Transportation, sure. Absolutely. And so what we did is we actually got a number of people and stakeholders around the uh, not only the city but the state to come in and just sit down and say, what are the issues around legalization? What are the things we have to think about? What do employers have to think about? What do doctors have to think about? What do law enforcement have to think about? All those things. And then what are the issues and what are the resolutions? And that's kind of what we did. And So how so, many meetings did you have? I mean, that must be hundreds of meetings. Well, it was there were many because we had a task force that had about 30 people involved. And then we had sub-working groups that probably had about 30 people in each one of them. There were five of them. So... But what we did was we created this process by which there was continuous improvement and there was continuous evaluation. And everybody bought in. What we found was when everybody feels heard, the industry, law enforcement, et cetera, there is more buy-in. And so people want to be compliant. And what we started to find was that what had been a largely unregulated industry not really, uh, you know, having been well-versed in paying taxes, uh, being regulated, all those things, they were willing to come on board. And if it hadn't been for that uh, desire and that willingness, it might not have worked as well. But How we hard was law enforcement to get bought in? Because I oh. think that it takes a lot of their power away now that they don't have to get budgets for this uh, industry and that they're not examining it as well. They then have to shift resources to other places, and that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to get agencies to do. Oh, law enforcement, uh, we had to work very, very hard to bring law enforcement to the table. And the reason was because all of their, uh, their professional career, uh, right. cannabis was illegal. It was the bad thing. It was something to, was you know. It was a gateway drug to all exactly, the other Exactly, absolutely. Things. And so what we had to do was carve out this is the regulated cannabis. Here's where you can buy it and cultivate it and sell it legally. Here's the black market. It's the black market that we needed to have law enforcement help to address. And it was hard for them. And so one of the things that Colorado did was enact a couple of statutes that gave them, number one, more bright line tests to know what was legal cannabis and what was illegal cannabis, and then to also provide them with grant money so they could have resources to go out and address the issues around um, black market cannabis. So now we talk about law enforcement, but what about the uh, dispensaries that are now going to pay taxes? How hard was it to get them to buy into it? Because, you know, traditionally they didn't split their proceeds with anybody. Well, two things happened. One, uh, it was still legal at the f illegal at the federal level. Everybody knows that. We all, that's usually the very first thing that we say before we start talking about anything. And the industry knew that this was going to be the big experiment. And if it failed in Colorado, it wasn't going to go anywhere else. And so they were willing sure. to try. And the other thing, though, was that in the Department of Revenue, the department that I head up, headed up, we have the state tax group, too. My folks went out and actually trained these businesses on how to um, file their sales tax returns, how to file excise tax returns, how to file wage withholding returns, those kinds of things. And we also brought them in and helped them file their first couple of months. That must and have been very interesting if I'm thinking back to some of my clients and all of a sudden they're in like wage tax returns. I can't even imagine they knew what that 
those phrases were. Well, it, it really it really was, uh, I think, a little bit difficult for them. But they rallied, and my team rallied with them. And, you know, there is, um, you know, we collect in Colorado a, a large amount of taxes. And that money goes towards, you know... You know, the enforcement side of it, it goes for public service campaigns, it goes for youth education, youth prevention, uh, you know, drug treatment campaigns. It also is now going for, uh, to help with some of the homeless initiatives that we have in the state. Oh, great. That's good. Just recently, Colorado actually surpassed $1 billion in taxes. In tax revenues. From since 2014. Since 2014. Man, congratulations. Yes. Like, the government must be very happy with you. Well, <laughs> you have, Governor Hickler It's not a huge was. amount well, compared to the total budget. You have to realize this year, you know, it's about 200 to 250 million a year. Right. And if you think about the state budget this year, it was 32 billion. So it's really a drop in the bucket. It's not intended to you know, be this panacea of money. And it shouldn't be, quite honestly. Right, there's other things to take, It should too. be addressing the social costs that surround this yeah. industry. And right. it's created a whole lot of jobs. It has. Right. So um, I'm going to switch a little bit and talk to Jason Stearns about uh, hemp and CBDs and all that that is the sort of positive uh, medical aspect of the cannabis uh, legalization. So Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are, what you do. I know you work for the Hoban Law Firm, or yes. I'm counsel to them out yes. in Florida. So, uh, and how is the new hemp rules uh, impacted by this? Well, let's understand the difference between hemp and marijuana, because it confuses a lot of people. Technically, it's the cannabis plant that creates both. But when it has, as a cannabinoid, uh, less than... Uh, 0.3 of 1% THC, the hey, active hey, ingredient. Hey, one second. So a cannabinoid is the CBD? Well, the cannabinoids are all the elements within the cannabis plant. Okay. Including THC, including CBD, CBN, CBG. They've identified somewhere around 140 different cannabinoids that are there. Okay. So the, the question came up, what about hemp? Is it different, and how is it regulated? Technically, up until last December, hemp was considered a controlled substance on a federal basis, which is a little strange because hemp is used for all kinds of things, like rope, clothing, uh, across the board, the fiber. Paper, right. Mm -hmm. But they were focusing mostly in on CBD, which is the element that is a benefit from the hemp plant. So until last December, it was still illegal. Even today, state by state, it's still illegal in certain states, like Ohio, for example, like Florida, who arrested a woman at uh, Universal Studios in Orlando about six weeks ago for having a small bottle of CBD for her arthritis. They arrested her for it. So CBD is a painkiller of some sort? CBD has pain management capabilities, but that's another issue because the FDA is now closely looking at this. They don't want anyone to make medical claims. They're still uncertain about what CBD really is. For example, in Florida, uh, every street corner has a vape shop that is a big sign in the window that says CBD. The reality is it is not CBD. It is hemp seed oil, which has no real component of CBD in it. 
So, so you're seeing that in states. So it's sort of like vitamins. It's, yeah, it's that's a little right. gray area of exactly FDA. Right. Right. But last December, the federal government, signed by the president, had a, a farm bill that now changes hemp from being a controlled substance to being an agricultural commodity. Nice. So how does that impact, or how has that impacted the hemp industry, the CBD industry? Well, again, keep in mind there's really two industries. There's the fiber industry, which is continuing just fine, not just for things like hempcrete to build buildings, things like that. And then there's the CBD industry. Right now, because of the Farm Bill, every state is putting together their own law about hemp and CBD that will go to the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, at the federal level for approval, who have also now been putting together the regulations. That's going to take some time. So there's going to be a little bit of a gray zone here for a little bit of a time before this gets worked out. How does the CBDs impact um, epilepsy, brain injuries, brain diseases? Because I know they're used for that too. It's interesting because when you had the original use of medical marijuana, like in Colorado, they were using it for children, for example, who have seizures. For Dravet syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, okay. And there's one individual, it was Charlotte Fiji, who was the impetus to a lot of right. that, and, and the strain is now called Charlotte's Web. All right. But Thank what you. they found was you don't need that much THC to be effective. If it has CBD, it's, it's always nice to have a little bit of THC in there. It's more I effective, so <laughs> but it can't be over 0.3 of 1% or else it is considered marijuana. And there's been a lot of cases where states have gone out where hemp is being grown while it's still on the ground, and they examine it. And if it has more than 0.3 of 1% THC, they burn the crop. That's quite a harsh reality for well, the poor farmer. <laughs> but there is now crop insurance uh, under the new federal law for hemp. So because of the farm bill, are farmers then, uh, I guess, uh, perfecting their hemp to where it comes under that regulation? Most farmers really don't have any background in hemp. They want to learn more about it. Uh, I'm working with a group at Texas Tech University that want to convert in Texas from cotton to hemp. All right. So that's going to be a major issue in Texas. It's going to save water in the panhandle because they're going to run out of water there in 30 years by converting to hemp. Oh, because hemp takes less water than cotton? Is that Yes, and it actually helps the water filtration system in the ground to grow hemp. All right. That's interesting. Are there any other states that you're working with doing that? Yeah, I'm working currently with Ohio, uh, with Texas, with Louisiana. Uh, Recently, uh, Mississippi has asked for some help. So we're doing it step by step. So to Andrew's point, there is actual growth in the southeast, which I, as a cool offense lawyer, thought that would never happen. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's progress that, in that direction. Where do you see this going in the future? Well, the big issue is going to be the regulatory side, particularly the FDA and states like California, where the Department of Health has actually banned CBD from any product you can consume. The FDA is the critical piece. They're holding public hearings now and asking for comment because they're concerned, that, number one, 
is going to be the quality of the CBD, and that's a big issue. Right, because you have and to have standard quality throughout the industry. Standard quality, dosage, right, and also what kind of marketing is going on. If you're out there marketing CBD and you say it cures cancer, which some people are doing, right. the FDA has legitimate concerns. On the other side of that, though, there's a lot of people that effectively have been taking CBD to help them sleep, to help with stress, to help them with pain management, and that's something that the public has a right to. So hopefully the FDA will find a middle ground instead of just saying it has to be pharmaceutical in nature. Okay. I'd like to turn now to uh, Amanda Auschwitz. Amanda is the co-founder of Cannabrex and a really brilliant attorney when it comes to banking and marijuana work. So could you give us some information about your background yeah. and how that all happened? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an attorney by trade, but um, I'm not practicing as an attorney because I'm running this company called Cannaregs. And what we are is we're the regulatory data source for the entire cannabis industry. Uh, so much the way that a litigator would use a LexisNexis to figure out case law, any attorney practicing in this space is using our tools uh, to get quick access to cannabis law and regulation all the way down to the municipal level. And not just the law and regulation, but any time a government even talks about the subject. So, you know how Barbara had mentioned all the policy task force meetings they hold at the state level. We're tracking that kind of content as well as local government meetings and anything that's happening so that people can get ahead of policy as opposed to merely responding to it. So that's what we do um, day to day. We currently track law and regulation in 13 states. Um, and at the end of June, we're launching all 50 states of hemp CBD law. Wow, that's a quite impressive. That must be a huge database. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's got a whole lot of content, and every single day we're adding, you know, at minimum 100 new entries to the system uh, because that's changing that quickly. I mean, local governments are meeting every single day. I think uh, yesterday we tracked, uh, I believe, 76 different local governments in our 13 states that we're meeting on cannabis. So it's never-ending and constantly changing, and we're happy to be that hub of information. How has the transformation from the Obama administration to the Trump administration impacted the banking rules that go around hemp or marijuana, well, cannabis? The thing is, is that the banking rules haven't changed as a whole. It's the people in the office and how they enforce things. And so, you know, we had the Jeff Sessions era. And if you ask, uh, you know, my opinion, Jeff Sessions was a tool for distraction. And he, you know, all he ever actually did was said he was going to come after the cannabis businesses. He didn't actually do it, but that was enough to make banks really freeze up and, and become extremely frightened to service this industry. And uh, has, has William Barr changed the once once Jeff climate? Sessions uh, left office? I'll never forget the day because I'd actually flown a red eye to be at another conference, and I was kind of starting to crash later in the day because I'd, I'd slept two hours. And I'll never forget the chills that came through my body uh, of joy and excitement and adrenaline. I made it through the rest of the day without any more coffee. I'm pure joy. Um, but it did change quite a bit. I think merchant services have become more accessible, but it's still not easy, and, and nothing is. And, and at the end of the day, the banking situation is where it was several years ago. It's in the same place now, and it's very simple. There are FinCEN guidelines that are very challenging and robust, and they'd say, you know, it is not federally legal to bank cannabis, but if you are going to bank cannabis, here's a set of rules you should follow, and most likely we'll leave you alone, but no guarantees. And they're extremely robust, and they are rigorous. Whenever I lecture on banking, I actually go through all 10 of these recommendations um, in depth, 
And I do it to make the point of showing how robust and rigorous it is to actually comply with this. And so for these small banks, it can be worth it. They can actually come into compliance with most of these rules um, and they can charge a fair bit of uh, you know, overhead fees just to get a bank, which um, for these banks, most income in banks comes from loan interest and um, investing, not from fees. That's a very, very small piece. So for a small community bank or credit union, they can find great profit in doing this, but they have to have a very robust system in place. However, for the big boys, the risk is not worth the reward. So you're not seeing your Bank of America's, your Wells Fargo's, right. your Chase's in the, the game right now. It's just not worth it for them. And I, and ahead, I can say something. Um, I collected all those taxes, and I will tell you that uh, there were a lot of taxes that were paid in cash, but there were some that were paid in money orders. And, but there were still a large number that had bank accounts even at the beginning. And if those individuals and that money that was through a banking enterprise grew and it continued to grow. So it's, it's complex and it's rigorous, but it's not impossible. And it, I, it behooves both these smaller banks or credit unions in a lot of ways and the businesses to really develop a relationship so that they can know their customer. Right. That's what, the key. What? You have to know who you're banking. Exactly. And it's happening. People are getting bank accounts. We take. We don't take cash payments. I, I think we took one very small one back in 2015, and that was about it. But even we suffer the banking issues. Last year, you know, um, you know we're Is a VC that because of your name? No, it's actually not because of our name. And actually, our company's name is Regs Technology. So any bill anyone gets from us, it's Regs Tech that's the bill. But um, it was because of who we were taking money from. And uh, we lost our merchant services. And if you go back to where when this happened to us last February, we were still a bootstrapped company. I had more than enough in contract revenue every month to pay my payroll. But I didn't have millions of dollars of investor money. And when we got our, our banking cut off, not only did they just say, you know, you can't process with us anymore, they didn't decrypt any of the information. So we had 96 accounts uh, that we had to go recover payment information from, and I had to figure out how to make payroll. And we're a data platform. We track law. But they said because of who we took money from, they were cutting us off. And it took months to solve it. And, you know, I made payroll. We did some very fast consulting. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> but it's, to say the least, it, it goes all the way through in um, every element of this industry. So... We're hoping that in due time there is some banking reform at the federal level because that's the real answer. Did you ever find out what was the impetus of deciding that you took money from the wrong people? Do you know what it was that gave them the idea that that happened? Or uh, what it, they was took it some it, of your behavior or somebody said no, something to them? I mean, like, here's the thing. Uh, we definitely take, we, we're not just selling to law firms. We're selling to lobbyists. We're selling to governments. We're selling to the cannabis businesses. I think that was probably the biggest tipping point. But honestly... My own theory is they probably had a list of known people that probably Vicente Cedarberg is probably on that list of people that are known associates of the cannabis industry. And it could have been their credit card payment to us that did it. It could have been, you know, NorCal Cannabis Company or whatever. But most of them are operating with DBAs. I think during that era of scare, my theory is that there was a list circulated as to who these known cannabis associates were and the big financial institutions were basically told to steer clear. It. Yeah. Right, right. So I've noticed from uh, my clients' work that there's a lot of credit unions in this space. Can you explain why that is and maybe people should look to them? Well, um, you know, credit unions have different regulations than banks, and there's certain ones that might make it more appealing than others. 
but I honestly don't think it's because it's credit union over community bank so much as that that small size that works. So it's for getting to know your cannabis. customers. It's just, it's just mm -hmm. really no. It's it's more so the bank has to look at whether or not the risk is worth the reward. And for these credit unions and small community banks, the reward is great. And I think uh, when it's really these smaller community level enterprises, and that just happens to be a lot of credit unions, I don't think it's actually the regulation of a credit union over a bank that makes for the difference. I just think it's the profile of the financial institution size-wise and risk appetite that happens to attract a lot of credit mm -hmm. unions. Well, that's interesting. When you talk about the being a conglomerate or a, a catch-all for all the regulations, how often are you seeing those regulations uh, change state by state? Is, is it coming in <laughs> fast and furious, or is it coming Constantly. in? Constantly. It's, you know, not always just about law and regulation changing. You know, in California, we've got 21 agencies at the state level involved. Thankfully, Colorado kept it a lot simpler, and there's just a couple of them. But while Colorado is, you know, doing an annual rulemaking session where the biggest stuff happens. There's always continuous guidance documents coming out, new publications that need to be considered when you're looking at following law and regulation. So it's a never-ending process. Um, and in other states, you know, it, it may be more often, but we're also, remember, county and municipal law, that's what's changing the fastest. But it, it's amazing every single day what's coming out and the new uh, pieces because what the regulation might say uh, is, your packaging must include this symbol at this size on everything. And then it's challenging because the attorney goes and tells their client, this is what the law says, and makes them throw out all their old packaging, go buy new packaging, and um, then two weeks after they've done that, there's a guidance letter that comes out and says, okay, you can use your old packaging until the end of the year. And then the attorney's you know, client gets mad, and they're like, attorney, you told me to do this. And you're trying to guide them the correct direction. But part of what you have to accept and understand in this industry is that the only thing that is certain is change, and that you have to be adaptable. And the, when the attorney gets frustrated in this, they also have to remember that keeps them in business. <laughs> but, it, but it is change, and it's, uh, a lot of it is driven through legislation. The first year, we had five bills. And that was the entirety of it. Now, I would bet you, you probably have around 50 to 60 bills that touch cannabis in some way. And so as a result, legislators are now becoming uh, more sophisticated and they have constituents that are coming in and talking with them. And so as a result, there are a lot of bills that are being sponsored by the industry, by lobbyists, as well as state government, and so or even local government. So. Anytime you have legislative changes, you have regulatory changes, mm -hmm. and you have implementation guidelines. I think the key to that is going to be communication and how you address all of the changes and how they're done and, and how they're rolled out. So the nuance is really what's catching up with yeah, everybody. Yeah, it's, it's super nuanced. And again, I tell this all the time. You know, I present to government a lot of the time because we're this neutral source and they want to know how do we prevent over-concentration. And I'll give them options. I'll give them here are the three different ways that uh, we see it most common. Here are some cities that have adapted each. But you all have a unique jurisdiction of your own. You're going to have different populations, different, uh, you know, education levels, income levels, physical geographies, and that's going to affect it. And that's why they're all so different. But 
the most important thing to do in day one of this is accept that you are not going to get it right on the first try. You are not a dry county in Oklahoma who is now deciding you're going to allow alcohol and you have a hundred years of alcohol regulations to borrow from. That doesn't exist. It's do your best the first time and accept that this is an ongoing process and we are, you know, maybe getting to the top of the second inning of this nine inning baseball game, if that. But it's going to be changing no matter what. Uh, And you're right. It isn't going to be complete the first at the first get-go. Uh, I also regulated alcohol, and let's face it, uh, prohibition ended on alcohol about 100 years ago. There are still major legislative changes that are happening today. Who among us could have envisioned powdered alcohol that came out about three <laughs> years ago, right? Yeah. And so as a result, it, the industry, the legislators, the whole thing has to be nimble enough and be able to be self-evaluative enough that they know how to then move forward with implementation of change. Thank you. I'm going to now turn to uh, the two criminal defense lawyers here at the other end of the table. And thank you for the business information. But, uh, Lenny, why don't you start us off? Lenny Freeling is a criminal defense lawyer in Boulder, Colorado. He works with Imhoff and Associates. And I'm going to ask you, so are there DUIs that are being uh, written and prosecuted based on marijuana? More by the day. So how are the law enforcement agencies prosecuting these? Is there any science that they're using, or are they just using the standard guessing that you're drunk or you're stoned? Yes. (laughs) Part of it is based on are you impaired to the slightest degree or substantially impaired. What we did succeed in, in doing, we fought off per se limits for three consecutive attempts, and then the fourth year, um, I'll take some credit, although Sean McAllister was deeply involved in the stakeholder mm-hmm. stuff. I was talking to the state's scientist, and she, when she realized, she said to me, so per se means that people can't put on a defense? And I said, well, basically, that's yes. exactly yes. what it means. And she said, oh, I didn't know that. And the next day, we had permissible inference and in spite of some defense attorneys being very unhappy about that, I do... Right, it's at least an opening and ability to litigate something. And we're winning right. cases over that squishy presumption of five. Right. We're winning them at 10, 20, which we should be because the science supports us clearly. So is there, since this was a prohibition for so long, is there any science to back up how much THC in your system you should have, or is there? Yes. The answer is, doesn't work like alcohol. Alcohol is unique. One person. How does it make, is it unique? It is unique because people will be similarly impaired by similar concentrations in blood. With most drugs, particularly with marijuana, it's simply not true. If you look at a whole group of people at 10 nanograms per milliliter active THC in whole blood, you will not see correlation between the number and how impacted they are, whether it's an impairment or not. It simply doesn't correlate. Damien Cassids is a criminal defense lawyer in uh, Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. So, and you do a lot of work with, I think, uh, field sobriety tests and stuff like that. So, I'm sorry, Correct. I jumped into you. <laughs> no, go comment. right ahead. And, and unfortunately, what Lenny was leading into is correct. Is there's been a terrible tendency 
among law enforcement and especially the DA's office to sort of take a one-size-fits-all approach to impairment. If it looks like impaired for alcohol, they just try and shoehorn it in to THC impairment, and it doesn't work. The physiology is different. The impairment signs are different, but they've just sort of bookmarked, um, like with the roadsides, uh, they have just taken the signs of impairment for the roadsides, the field sobriety maneuvers for alcohol, and used it for THC, and so it the, simply the doesn't NHTSA work. So the NHTSA manual is just being applied to the marijuana folks uh, as it was applied to the alcohol folks? Basically, yes. If you find one of the really, really old NHTSA manuals, um, when they were first starting to train... Oh, the for our audience, what is NHTSA? Oh, it's the stand? National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Thank you. And they are the folks that at least sort have put out some standards for the field sobriety maneuvers. Right, and the police departments are trained on those manuals, right? Correct. Um, almost everyone, every officer gets training on those, and it's open book training, and it's not very good, and they usually forget about 90% of it at the moment they walk out of the door and get back into their cruiser. Well, I think that's the issue, is their training's inside a building, and the tests are given out on the street. Well, that's one of the big problems. And, I mean, it, it even starts with the science behind the test for alcohol is pretty shaky to begin with, and there's no real science with regard to THC impairment that has really been done to speak of. And in fact, as Damon knows, there's the opposite. We know it doesn't work. We know scientifically that standard field sobriety testing simply does not work to show cannabis influence. So can people still touch their nose and miss it and not be arrested? I mean, is that what you're saying? It doesn't, it's not applicable? Well, they try and make it applicable, but it, again, physiologically, it really doesn't work because the signs that you would typically see from alcohol impairment, you're not necessarily seeing with someone that is THC impaired. And, again, it's like Lenny was saying earlier, it just doesn't work the same. Right. It, you know, at least one thing that's gone by the wayside is we've stopped seeing the green tongue stops for marijuana nearly as much. But, you know, they'll get someone out of the car, they'll start horizontal gaze nystagmus. And, and that's the test for your eyes for with the, the eyes. Fl flashlight, right? And, well, that's junk science to begin with, and it absolutely doesn't work for THC impairment, but yet on almost every DUID I see, the cop is going to claim he's seen six out of the potential six clues on horizontal gaze for someone that he suspects or she suspects is impaired by marijuana. Um, walk and turn, one leg stand, any of the normal um, tests, they, you're just you're not going to see the right signs for THC impairment like you do with alcohol. Well, for example, it would be quite simple to measure reaction time on an iPhone app, and I know that because we invented one. Marijuana does tend to slow down reaction time. Very simple, looks at behavior, and frankly, I don't care if a driver's reaction time is slow because they smoked or slow because they're tired. Their driving might well be impaired. Let's look at behavior. Let's look at things that matter. Have you guys seen a, a large increase of cases for the uh, driving under the influence of marijuana since the uh, legalization? 
I don't think that there's necessarily been an, an increase, but there has been a shift in filing from alcohol to doing a lot more testing for THC impairment. Right, I haven't noticed an increase, a super increase in California, so I was just wondering if it's played out differently because of the years of your openness uh, here in Colorado. Well, what I'm seeing primarily is they'll make a stop, suspect alcohol, go through the routine of the field sobriety maneuvers that almost no one ever has the presence of mind to decline. They'll pull out the PBT and it will come up with some absurdly low number and they'll have their Sherlock moment of, aha, that must be THC impairment. And again, they're just trying to shoehorn their beliefs into justifying the stop. Thank you. I'm going to ask one last question to Amanda. And Amanda, I want to know, where do you see this going with all the different regulations and why should law firms uh, try to have a marijuana practice business? Nice open-ended one there for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think this is eventually going to be a fully national movement and federally legal, but the timeline, you know, is to be determined. Uh, However, we're still always going to have a piecemeal system with each state having its own laws. And that's not just unique to cannabis, but anything that's highly regulated and hyper-local for that matter, right? It's not like scooters and dockless bicycles are illegal, but still every single city has their own regulations for them. And so we're going to still have this really challenging piecemeal system, which creates a lot of work for law firms. And the reality is, is that this market, as it grows, there's going to be more clients to service it. It's going to interplay with a lot of your existing clients, existing businesses. And uh, there's just a whole lot of room right now and a lot of need for people with specialties. Right. So there's, there's probably like water rights and farming laws exactly. and, and how to dis, uh, dispose of your I mean, fertilizers there's room properly. There's for hundreds of IP attorneys in this space alone, just in IP law. Right. Uh, every little aspect, there is specialty expertise needed. Can, can I make one comment sure, too? Barb. Absolutely. And, and cannabis regulation law is uh, in addition to every other kind of law. And it's very complex. And you have to understand what it is. And let me give you an example. Uh, only the state licensing authority in Colorado can determine and, and state who can run a cannabis business. Now... In other industries, if there's a divorce or there's some sort of uh, inability to, uh, to perform, you can have a receiver come in and take over that business. That can't happen in Colorado unless that receiver is also licensed. And we actually took that up to the state Supreme Court because the, uh, what that would have done was that would have had individuals who had not been vetted, not gone through the background oh, right. checks, they would assume to, to assume operation and control right. over a licensed business that they had not been uh, vetted, properly vetted for. And so that's where it's really important to get a good um, uh, expertise in that so that you know what things will apply and what areas of the law do not apply to this. I think that's actually a whole new industry in itself. It a is. receivership who's got a license. Exactly. Interesting. Well, it looks like we're reaching the end of our program, but before we sign off, I want to thank our guests for joining us today. If our listeners have questions and wish to follow up, how can they reach you? And we'll start with Andrew. Absolutely. So you can reach us by going on the website, vicentecederberg.com, and you can find our office number. Give our office a call. You can also reach me personally at andrew at vicentecederberg.com. 
And uh, we are happy to help you uh, with your national licensing issues, with your national corporate uh, merger issues. And if you've got any economic needs, some modeling needs, some business analytics, come and give me a call. All right. Barb Brohal, why don't you tell us how we can uh, reach you? Uh, you can uh, go onto my website as well, which is bjbrolstrategies.com, or you can... Can you spell bro for our listeners? Sure. Brol is spelled B as in boy, R-O-H-L. So that is bjbrolstrategies.com, or you can send me an email at barbara at bjbrolstrategies.com. Jason Sears, you're with the Hoban Group and also Grok. Uh, could you tell us how our listeners can reach you? Yes, you can reach us at our website, grokuniversal.com or my personal website, which is je.cerns, S-E-A-R-N-S, at gmail.com. And Amanda Osterich, how do we get a hold of you and Canarex? Yeah, so our website is canarex.com. You can find out everything about our product and our service and get a demo of our software there. Um, to, you can also contact our support um, or to get a hold of me interested in signing up and learning more, it's amanda at canarex.com. Thank you. Uh, Lenny Freeling, how can our listeners contact you? Drug Lawyer at DrugLawyerColorado.com. All right. Damon, how do we get the information to contact you? Well, you can go to our website, which is LawFirmWKC.com. You can email me at Damon, D-A-M-O-N, at LawFirmWKC.com. Or you can give me a call. I'm always happy to take calls and answer questions, and that's 719 719- Six three three, six three zero three. Thank you. And I am Vince Imhoff. I'm able to be reached at uh, Imhoff and Associates. Uh, our website is criminalattorney.com. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Vince Imhoff. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.